This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Ewa Messer, I'm the producer and host of Poured Over, and I have one job today, and that only job is to be straight man for Sloane Crosley. Ha ha! Um, I'm so happy to see you. Cult Classic is out now. It is her newest book, and it is a novel, and it's the sibling to The Clasp. So if you've read The Clasp, there's going to be a lot of talk about creating fiction and creating fictional characters and telling stories, but we're going spoiler-free on Cult Classic because when this airs, it's going to be wicked close to the pub date, and <laughs> there's something that happens towards the end of the book that made me laugh out loud, and I'm so excited for people to experience it. So, hello, you. Hi. It is How great to you? see you. I'm, I'm better now that I'm here. Oh, good. It's good, true, good, good. though. I mean, it's great to see you. The Thank glamour. you for having me. The glamour. <laughs> here we are. The glamour, the glory. On the fifth floor of the Union Square store, actually, which is, it is glamour. It is glamorous. It genuinely is. And of course, it's, you know, even if you were not a reader, this is the, the decoration of choice for the new generation. Right. It should and be actually color coded, I think, to make it terrible. These are <laughs> they all, look beautiful. These are beautiful looking books. Yeah. These are all the books we've done in the first sort of oh, start of the show. Everyone okay. who's here has been on the show. So oh, it's, wow. it's, and live to tell the tale. Ah, uh, you know, we try. We try. <laughs> all right. So let's talk about cult classic for a second. Because okay. When did you start working on this novel? So I started in late 2017, early 2018, okay. which by, you know, fictional standards or fiction standards is actually not too long a stretch, mm -hmm. but um, I finished it pretty quickly for me. Normally right. things take me quite a long time and mm -hmm. I finished it pretty quickly, but then handed it in in uh, March 2020. Oh, wow. So um, we decided to just to be a little... just to lead with some inside baseball to try to avoid the bottleneck of publishing mm -hmm. and, and move it lightly, which I'm very happy we did. That is a really, really good idea. So Lola mm -hmm. is the heart of the story, and you gave me two different earworms at two different points, and there was a lot of Barry Manilow in my life for about five minutes, and then followed up quickly by the kinks. So thank you for that. Do you know how to get rid of that, by the way? Oh. I can tell you. It's gone now, so okay, I'm not okay. sure I should have no, raised no, no. it. Anytime, you know, I, I mean, I know you, you have a distinct question you're going to ask me about the book and why I'm here, but just as a tip for <laughs> listeners everywhere, if you have songs stuck in your head, you know how Neutrogena, uh, the shampoo, is supposed to allegedly wash out, you know, mildew or not mildew, but like build up. Oh, hair. right, right, right. You know, right, it's right, like a right, canceling all sort of, mm -hmm. um, you know, refreshing thing. I don't know if that's true. I'm not shilling for them. Um, but I will say if you hum uh, anything by Bob Marley, it will kick whatever is in your head out without getting the Bob Marley stuck in your head. Okay. This is good to know. That is my one tip. Now we can talk about the book. Okay. <laughs> but this is love. This love is memory. It. This is New York. This is wellness. This is not so much Bob Marley, but okay. <laughs> Very little Bob Marley in the book. You started this in 1718, you took your time, you handed it in in 20, but how did it start? For narrative nonfiction, I tend to start either with a story or a theme, and um, it's, it's pretty defined. I can point mm -hmm. at which essay is which. Mm -hmm. For fiction, it sort of comes together in a, in a, there's a little bit of alchemy to it without sounding too insufferable about it, um, where I did feel like I was avoiding a certain topic a lot. I don't, despite writing all this narrative nonfiction and despite writing The Clasp, which has a fair bit of romance in it, mm -hmm. I don't really write about dating and men on a, on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. um, it's, just, it's just not something I feel like I've written about. And, and a lot of that is to avoid pigeonholing and a lot of that is to avoid um, 
response, but you shouldn't operate um, just because you're afraid of perception. And so I feel like I sort of <laughs> dove headlong and I found a way. I just needed a container that felt original to me, at least. I hope mm-hmm. it comes off as original, but felt original to me um, to write about relationships and commitment and uh, sort of the philosophy of romance and do we believe in um, happy endings and all that jazz um, in a way that felt uh, fresh and literary and not infantilizing towards those topics that permeate every aspect mm-hmm. of our lives. And so uh, once I sort of thought there is a wish fulfillment aspect to it mm-hmm. where I thought, okay, you have this comedy of manners um, where people are sort of desperate to bust out of it a little bit. And right. in that way, it's similar to the clasp. I, yeah, in this really twisted way, uh, decided to um, have this book set in, or partially set in an abandoned synagogue on the Lower East Side that's been turned into a mind control cult. <laughs> but in like a cute way. I think for fans of the Nexium documentary, this is not the book for you. <laughs> like, you know? <laughs> there is definitely that. I mean, Lola yes. is a very specific kind of, I don't want to say New York gal, but she's got her history. She's got her present. She's got her history. And she likes having the two closer together than some. So is Lola the first character that showed up, or did you start with the idea that you wanted to do this big exploration into oh, wow. love and relationships and all of the things you don't usually write about? <laughs> well, two things. One is I, she is quite New York-specific, mm-hmm. rather. Um, but I think her general desire is for consistency in her life, which mm-hmm. seems pretty universal to me as well, the idea that... Um, she's dated all these different people and people just have this, the fantasy of someone who knew you when, so you're not, um, sort of shaking the etch a sketch and starting over every single time is frustrating. Um, and she would like a more permanent, you know, uh, witness really for selfish Mm -hmm. reasons. Um, and I think that is kind of universal, but she's actually not the first one who Mm -hmm. showed up. That's an interesting way to put it. Um, it's probably Clive. Okay. So her, uh, she has this relationship with her former boss uh, at a magazine that is called Modern Psychology, which is basically Psychology Today, mm-hmm, but it has mm-hmm. not folded, so good for Psychology Today. <laughs> but in the book, it has. <laughs> um, and uh, he's become this sort of guru-type mm-hmm. uh, figure. But I just really liked their relationship, as I suppose what showed up first. Right. Not really him, but this this... They've known each other for so long that they've gone through all the possible guises of that kind of relationship where there's a mentorship. He's like her older brother at some point. She thinks that maybe this is the person she's meant to be with at some point. Then she has this sort of disdainful relationship with him. Then they're friends, but she knows him so well. They have this contentiousness and then also this deep love for each other. And I really love the idea of putting someone like that in a novel like this. So it's not just... Will she, won't she? And, you know, you're not, mm-hmm. hopefully you're not wondering if she's, you know, going to end up with him. Um, but he's also a very prominent figure. The, you know, the people you don't know what to do with in your life are hard to write about in fiction. Yeah, and he also, though, he's such a contrast to Lola because he is a little more sure of where he sits well, he's in rich. the world. <laughs> yes, rich Honestly, helps. Wealth will do wonders <laughs> for your self-esteem. I recommend it. Try it. I've, I've heard, at least, I should say. But he's also part of her sort of critique mm-hmm. of men. Mm-hmm. Um, so he sort of gets lumped in and represents something that isn't necessarily romantic, but um, 
we sort of watch him get advantage after advantage after advantage, um, but be quite lovable about it. So he's a complicated figure. You're not just, you're not sort of completely resentful about it. Um, he, he just doesn't see himself as privileged at all. Um, I don't know. I have a soft spot for Clive. I mean, I he's, he's terrible. He's a terrible person. I, but I just, but I love him. <laughs> yeah, but he has his place in the world. And yeah. if you were that terrible, I don't think Lola would still be remotely no. in his orbit because she's not a stupid girl. <laughs> no, she's not <laughs> stupid. But I think it's also, again, it's that, that fantasy of consistency, which is not really a way I've put it before, but I just, I think it extends, and I, and I hate to sound um, as hokey as it's about the friends we made along the way, but as much as it's a romance novel and a sort of suspense novel mm. about romance, it is truly also about those work friends and the core friends you have. And um, she's not getting that consistency from her romantic life. She is getting it from her friends. And so she's sort of hesitant to give them up even when they are um, abject problem children <laughs> because these are her people. And consistency is such a wild word to you. I keep, every time you say it, I'm just like, right, consistency. Yeah, she just wants, I think it's, it's, what I wanted to do with the book is, again, like sort of pay tribute or just respect a kind of life like that, you know, because what, what do you do with the people you've dated for five months or four months? Whether you have hurt them, they have hurt you, nobody hurt anybody, whatever it is. I mean, one mm. delightful thing that seems to be happening thus far, but that I don't know how to handle, <laughs> is people are asking me uh, relationship-based questions. Uh, you know, there's a lot about the philosophy of philosophy of love, if there is such a thing. And, you know, according to, like, Elaine, Elaine de Baton, love, yeah, 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 correctly. You know, there is. And it, there's a lot of that in the book about, you know, what is love? Is, you know, at some cynical person, some cynical character at some point in the book says um, it's agreeing to live in someone else's narrative. Mm. Um, someone else says, you know, it's letting someone else put glitter on your face. There's, there's a variety of, you know, offered right. um, explanations for it through fiction, but I'm being asked. <laughs> and I'm not Esther Perel. I don't freaking know. There's another <laughs> dude in the book who says that falling in love was like trying to remember something you never knew. And I was like, oh. Yikes. <laughs> I think, but you know what's funny? I think that that seems positive to me. It, you know, that's it. There's something about it where I feel like the times that I personally have mm -hmm. fallen in love, it's just this joy of finding familiarity, this joy of, um, you know, if it's sudden, it's the walking into the restaurant and thinking, there you are. You know, and uh, sometimes right. and you never knew them before, you know, but but I don't. I think for her, I just, I really tried to give Lola, you know, she's a bit of a mess. She's over analytical about this stuff. And, and it's not like uh, she has no similarities with me, but I do feel like I just turned up the dial as high as I could um, for satirical purposes. I have a note in my galley that says Nathaniel from the clasp yeah. could have been one of the dudes that Lola dated. And that's part of what makes me think of these novels as siblings is... You know, this idea that our friendships evolve and would we still be friends with the people yeah. that we were friends with before? And this goes back to what you were just talking about with this four to five month romance. It's like, what do you do with that person when you bump into them on the street? Later? And it has. Yes, it has happened to all of us. And you of kind of go, huh, do I cross the street? Do I make eye contact? How much, of an, how much do I want to engage in this particular situation? And you decide in the minute for the most part. I, if I may, you're yeah. also... Uh, 
part of her fatal flaw is that what you're describing, mm-hmm. she's prepared for it. So imagine walking around, you know, with all of those people so fresh in your head. It's it's unhealthy, you know, as opposed to not knowing what to do. Imagine running into that person and then having an immediate sort of index or mm-hmm. Rolodex of every text exchange you've ever had with them, as opposed to just knowing that there was something vaguely awkward and that we've all moved on and we're living our lives. Do, do you know? I mean, I, so, so her inability to let go of that is is her sort of Achilles heel. Uh, Lola and I have very different baseline settings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, just I imagine her brain is very crowded with this this crap. Oh, well, there's, there's sibling novels. And, yeah. you know, there is a lot to be said for, well, growing up. And that's a lot of what's happening in both of the books. And Lola, she's struggling with the idea of growing up. And part of that growing up is her partner, Boots, her fiancé, who is a glass blower. <laughs> oh, that was fun. Fun to research glass blowing. But here she is. She's engaged. I mean, isn't that the ultimate inconsistency? I mean, you're about to spend the rest of your life with this one guy, and she seems to be crawling out of her skin a little bit. Yes, but who amongst us is not married to their problems? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not, it's not, you know, that's the, the devil you know. Um, and so I think that that, it's really hard for her to accept um, a healthy definition of what it is to settle. Like it's a bad rap. It's a bad word. Um, but, you know, to, to sort of look around and think, what is enough? Um, what is me letting go of my old fantasies of how I thought a relationship should work out and going towards something that may or may not work out? Mm-hmm. Disillusionment is hard for her. Disillusionment is hard for her. But, yeah, I do think what, what I think the two books have in common, I think I sort of started to touch on it before, that, that really perverse strain of wish fulfillment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, where you have, you know, I don't, I didn't want to write novels about a bunch of kids in New York sitting around and debating about movies and talking in circles. And like, there is a, there's an art form for that. And it mm-hmm. is made by Whit, Still, Whit Stillman, you know, or even Ben Lerner, you know, or even right. like, and there's a way, um, and sometimes it's done to great effect. I mean, I right. think uh, Love Affairs of Nathaniel P, um, if you've ever read Muriel Spark, I mean, there's, there's, this is not, I'm not breaking a, a new mold and writing about romance in an, in an intelligent way, hopefully. But I do feel like they they want more than whatever's happening mm-hmm. with their social spheres and with their lives and their careers. Um, and it's not, I hope to not make them too self-pitying about it. It's just that they feel stuck. And so instead of unsticking them with some sort of casual drama or um, some melodrama, I, I like to give them something a little magical. So in the clasp, one of the characters becomes obsessed with the idea that a necklace in a short story is real, and he ends up uh, going to Normandy to try to find it because mm-hmm. he's a bit unhinged and underemployed. And his friends follow him, and you know, chaos mm. and antics ensue. <laughs> and with this one, you know, she, it's less um, of a, a life malaise, but she's sort of questioning mm-hmm. uh, very specifically the romantic part of her life and her relationship, whether she likes it or not, her old friend slash former boss comes mm-hmm. in with this grand, oddly fancy manipulation that I wanted to feel real. I don't think it's spoiling it too much to say that, you know, once this uh, process kicks in, the whole point of it <laughs> is that if she steps within a five block or so radius of this synagogue slash now club on the Lower East Side, she will probably run into an ex-boyfriend and she chooses to do so. Um, 
I wanted that choice to feel logical. If that happened to me, I think I would do it because I'd be so curious about whether or not it would work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, screw the consequences, which is right. sort of what happens with her. It doesn't seem like what the main characters would wish for, but it is, uh, you know, you can't always get what you want, but you try sometimes. <laughs> but the ex-boyfriends seem relatively okay. Okay, mentally? Like, just where where they are with their li- where they are yeah. with their lives, but that's also her perception. Mm-hmm. So so they're the they come in sort of a stream. There are some where you get a more concentrated, um, to use sort of a cinematic reference, like a, a link letter esque right. evening that she has. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe no sex in a graveyard, but yeah, that she has with them. It's, it's, the, it's the indie version of no sex in the champagne room, but mm-hmm. <laughs> but she uh, she you know she has this. Um, there's there's depth to a lot of them, but a right. lot of them are supposed to come. You know, she describes at some point them being propelled as if from a t-shirt gun at her, um, and so you don't really know if they're perfectly okay with their lives. But mm-hmm. I think that they are more equipped to run into somebody because they are not gripping on with their bare claws to the past mm-hmm. the way she is. Um, and there is there are a couple of moments with them where you can tell that there's an awkwardness. Mm-hmm. For them seeing her, that that you know, a lot of the point of it is that they remember her too, which is mm-hmm. how they are able to be summoned through mysterious means. Okay, so you've said in previous interviews that mm. plot is the hardest thing for you, and structure yeah. is the second hardest thing. So I want to switch for two seconds. Sure. Also, I don't want to give away too much. I know. Because, have I already I mean, done it? Have I done no, it? you have not. You have not. <laughs> but we are getting close to. Okay. Uh oh, some stuff may Sharing get revealed. Sharing a border mm. with a reveal. But I do want to talk about the actual physical craft of what you're doing because there were some people who have this idea that writing fiction means you just leave all of yourself on the page, right? And yeah, of course, you're the person who's creating all of this. So yes, there is going to be a piece of you in everyone, et cetera. We get all of that. But the actual physical mechanics of building a story like this, it's a little genre busting. There's a lot of different elements that you're playing with here. A lot of different tropes. Thank you. Well, you know, it was fun. It was a page turner. I read it <laughs> I very, just, very quickly. Whether or not it's successful at the busting is, is irrelevant. <laughs> I, just, I thank you for recognizing the effort. Keep going. <laughs> but so let's talk about just constructing a plot like this mm-hmm. and how you know the beats are there. And we are going to go spoiler free while we talk about beats in your plot. I'm not okay. entirely sure how we're going to do that, but we're going to figure it out. And then also the structure. I mean, you've got a very tight cast again. I mean, it's essentially. Lola, Boots, two best friends, and Clive. I mean, it's yeah, cast well, of five. Good, good, uh, good head count, yeah. And, you know, and the boys come in and out mm-hmm. and do their thing and whatnot, and there's some other folks. But that's really, you've got a really tight cast. You've got a very specific piece of New York. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a really tight, tight novel. And it's, yeah. what? It's, ready, not for even it's three, ready for its close-up. It is, and not even 300 pages, right? Do I, I have think that? it might be 300 pages. With the acknowledgement. Okay. I'm kidding. I have no, I idea. Have no idea, which is why I'm grabbing the gout. 284 pages oh, with no right. acknowledgements because I'm working off the galley. Okay. So how do you construct a book like this and still keep the heart and soul of it? My issue, and why I've said it in the past that it's mm-hmm. difficult, um, is because I think it sucks all the fun out to do it too mm-hmm. much. If I know exactly where everything is going, mm-hmm. um, it feels like... 
I'm spackling instead mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. painting or building or doing anything creative. I'm just sort of, which is what editing actually should feel like. Right. That's what editing should feel like, that you know you're not, you recognize the shape of something and then you're just smoothing it out. Mm-hmm. Writing, I don't think, should feel that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but plotting tends to, to hit that lever in me. Um, so for this, I knew what the ending would be about 50 or 60 pages into it. Um, okay. And I, I wonder if that, you know, not to critique my own novel, mm-hmm. but I wonder if it's apparent. I wonder if there's like a little bit of training wheels um, where you're like, oh, this is hopefully good, hopefully enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And I should also say that in terms of the, the, the why I write question mm-hmm. is very mm-hmm. different for other people. A lot of people have political ur- urgency, um, something they absolutely need to get out. Everybody should, mm-hmm. should have that one. That should be easy. Um, but I do write to entertain people. So for the most part, as long as I'm doing that, it's fine. But then realizing what the fairly large twist would be at the, mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. end um, provided me, uh, it's like threading a needle where I pulled it through mm-hmm. and then the plot sort of fell pretty smoothly like a right. piece of string, just to belabor the needle <laughs> sewing thing. Um, I should do a glass blowing analogy. Since. <laughs> we'll get to boots in a second. We're going to get to okay. boots. But that's, so, that's, so that's how I did it. And so in terms of when your question about like, how do I keep the heart of it, it is really hard to find. And I think I did it in this book probably more than I did it with the class. But I don't mm-hmm. know what the effect is, but I know what was going on in my brain um, and uh, on my keyboard. A, a little more finding that balance between I have to know where I'm going but it feels a little more like stand-up comedy or improv. And I just have to, I know that this character or these things have to open the door at the end or plug in the toaster. Mm-hmm. But now how do I get there? Right. Um, and it just for shorter sort of spurts so that I'm not babbling for too long as I am now. Lola never really stops moving. Even when she's home, there's never a moment where she's just staring at a wall, which Part of right. that, obviously, is because she's sitting in a novel and you can't have someone staring at a wall for very long. Literally a novel a about novel, grass growing. Right? Would not work. But it's really interesting to see her progression mm-hmm. through the story and how she responds to the challenges and the information that she's sort of handed out as it goes. And you have moments where you're like, she really does love this. And then there are moments where you're like, oh, oh, she's not, oh, Lola's really not okay. <laughs> Well, I think a couple things. Um, you know, you can. I was funny when I was making the grass growing joke. I did think that mm-hmm. you know, one person who has, you know, Otessa wrote a book uh, where the narrator is unconscious for ninety eight percent of the time, and I was like, good on you, girl. That's <laughs> a neat trick. She's part of the reason why there's always action in the book, mm-hmm. um, or there's always um, hopefully suspense as well as mm-hmm. the threat of suspense. Those are two different things um is because it is so there's so much of her interior world that you can't have her staring at a wall because she's it's it's this constant engine in her head so Mm -hmm. it is much easier for the reader for me for the book for everyone involved for her to be walking from point a to point b point b while she's thinking of these things as opposed to um there is a one moment where she wakes up really early and something has happened i feel like we both have an you know, it's, it's so funny. It's, it's uh, you know, I guess it's not in danger of being a book where nothing happens since oh, neither no. of us can talk about it. <laughs> oh, since no. Neither of us, I'm like, well, not that. It keeps, I feel like I keep on hitting these like weird cul-de-sacs um, of conversation where I can't actually share. 
Um, but something has happened, and she wakes up the next morning, mm-hmm. and there is a, you know, that, that specific light yeah. that comes into the apartment, and she's just sort of moving her hand in the air. It's like a moment of quiet. But the fact that it sticks out, the fact that I can count the moments right. where there's not a lot coming out, her sort of, you know, the exception proves the rule. She's a bit of an outsider in her own life. I know she doesn't really like it, but she doesn't know how to change it per se. She really gets in her own way a lot. She does. I mean, I think, but that again, I think what, a part of the point of the book was to um, not shy away from what we shy away from in real life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we shy away from real life is admitting uh, for exactly how long we are a mess and don't know what we're doing. You know, um, books, TV shows, any form of art, uh, we're very fine mm-hmm. with saying a 20-something or even a mid-30-something. Mm-hmm. All these shows should be called Shouldn't You Know Better by Now? You know, <laughs> like they should all have this. And But she's 37 and she actually has a lot going for her and she still feels a little bit at a loss. And a lot of the book is about she gets in her own way because... She feels that pressure for, for closure that now, you know, you were asking before about her relationship with Boots and her, her, her fiancé. She feels that because she's with him that it's she almost feels the societal pressure to forget or to minimize everything that came before him and that if any for any reason anyone in the past was just as big or important in a different way, the world will tell you that means that you are not ready to move on. You know, do not pass go. You cannot rescue yourself from a tower. It's not happening. And I actually think that part of the lesson of the book is is in debunking that mm-hmm. myth or that you know philosophy that we're fed. I know you've covered this ground, but I mean, any any comic writer has covered this ground to a certain extent. And you know, we've gone through these periods in our society and our culture where you know we declare that irony is dead and humor is gone and oh. that we can't do every of this. after every tragedy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And obviously we're living in a very strange it just it seems like everything is on fire and everything is on fire. It's not, it doesn't seem everything well, the is Amazon. on fire. Anyway, go ahead. Everything's on fire. <laughs> yes. But there is a certain power in humor and there's a certain relief in humor. But do you start with the funny or do you start with the idea and you let the characters lead you to where that relief and that care and that instinct is? I mean, it's not like you're sitting down and saying, hi, I'm going to be funny today. It's I'm looking at the world, right? And saying, I feel like flicking my hair. It's like this, <laughs> this old thing? What? <laughs> no, you don't. You don't sit down. And I, I would imagine that would make you very unfunny, um, you know. Well, two things. One, there's a great. Um, Do you ever read The Writing Life by Annie Dillard? And not in a million years. Not in a million years, right? Yeah. But it's like I, mean, I can't believe they mm-hmm. even fit the, the the font on the spine. It's so thin. <laughs> um, but she talks about the process of writing. That I think for me, it's the process of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, where she says, and this is an analogy that she mm-hmm. has a right to, and I do not. Where she says that if you um, if you're chopping wood mm-hmm. and you aim for the wood, you will miss. And if you aim for the chopping block, you'll hit it. You have to chop through mm-hmm. the wood. And I feel like that is, um, if I'm funny, how I'm funny. You, mm-hmm. dude, that's how it, it sort of works. I'm, it's, it's, um, you can't look it directly in the eye. <laughs> or it'll bite you. 
actually really interesting about the timing of this book and when mm-hmm. it's coming out. Because when you talk about escapism and mm-hmm. humor, you know, the world is a, a very dark, terrible place. And it's always hard to tell if darker, because the present always seems darker. You know, mm-hmm. you sort of have this nostalgia for the past. Or if we are really barreling towards a sixth extinction. Probably the latter. Mm-hmm. That's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, but I feel like during COVID... Um, that escapism really took the form of genuine escapism. Mm-hmm, People wanted to mm-hmm. watch Game of Thrones. They did not, or, you know, old episodes of, of Friends or The Office, you know, that they weren't, I think, craving um, the sort of more, you know, there are fantastical elements to this book, but it's mm-hmm. a lot of uh, what hopefully makes them successful is they are tethered to the ground by realistic dialogue or funny dialogue or, you know, just real um, recognizable interpersonal mm-hmm, relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like they didn't want that. And I think they, I mean, I'm not just saying this because I hope someone buys the book. I do think that there's a, a thirst again for escapism just simply being humor. And it doesn't necessarily have to be massive, large-scale fantasy. But that wasn't actually true. It's like almost hard to remember all these things about the past few years. It's weird that we pretend that there are three different years, first of all. Oh, that like 2020, 2021, and 2022, I'm like, give me a break. It's mm. one year. <laughs> I my concept of time is yeah. completely shattered. Right. I have. And people wanted like a different they wanted to be on a different planet. Yes. And now I feel like there's a little mm-hmm. bit of a return home and the um a nostalgia for the recognition of a life that is not necessarily past, but that is is reforming, especially in New York. Let's talk about who you are as a reader and who your literary influences are. Maybe just specifically on this book. Let's talk about let's stick to the fiction. Stick to the fiction. I know it's hard to do. I certainly don't write both at the same time. Right, right, right. Um, because I think that does a massive disservice to both of them. Mm-hmm. Having said that, of course, there are details or details, observations are observations. Mm-hmm. You're going to take notes and possibly funnel them down, you know, one river or the other. Mm-hmm. But I do feel like um, I read a lot of things that, that struck me. I mentioned Muriel Spark before, yeah. uh, Loitering with Intent, mm-hmm. um, Pitch Dark, the Renata Adler, like things like that after, mm-hmm. which is a very weird thing to do is to basically look at books and see how someone might have done them better. Right. <laughs> or addressed a topic in a different way. It's like reading a restaurant review after you've been there. <laughs> I totally, no, I totally Just to that. confirm your experience? I have no idea. Um, yeah. But uh, so for this book specifically, I would say there's no one book um, that influenced me, but I would say that I pulled mm-hmm. from different places. So... Um, the Rachel Kushner, Flamethrowers, mm-hmm. that sort of, uh, not to be totally hokey, but love letter to New York aspect of it yep. is is a lot from her, you know. And in terms of the sort of romantic vibe of it, mm-hmm. um, you know, I had read Love Affairs of Nathaniel P. Um, it's a great book. It's a great book. I feel like, again, my entire sort of generation mm-hmm has taken swipes about at this. And not just the ladies, you know, you've got right. um, Ben Kunkel did it in Indecision, like, you know, a while ago. Uh, same thing with Keith Kesson. And I feel like, um, or Ben Lerner, I mean, there's a lot of, so instead of books, really, I think it was this idea and the culture of the boys need to learn a lesson, right? Mm-hmm. Like, okay. And then that is, uh, I mean, if we're really going to talk about influence, that's Dickensian. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's, mm-hmm. it's the, you know, we're going to, you're going to be visited by a series of ghosts. Mm-hmm. And you're going to learn how to be a good person and what love is for. And it's a wonderful life. It's always the boys. You know, there's also 
the mystery elements. I think I am, um, how do I put this? When it comes to fiction, yep. and maybe when it comes to nonfiction too, uh, this is not really for me to say, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think I am a, a, a recently retro writer. What do you mean? I mean that I think I write novels like I love Jonathan Lethem's novels mm-hmm. and Michael Chabon's novels mm-hmm. and Donna Tartt's novels. And there's something, and I'm not saying, I'm not putting myself in the ring with those people by listing right. them. I'm just saying that they're funky, but they're not particularly experimental. They're mm-hmm. not, it's not, and you don't have a billion line breaks and nobody is throwing around words like autofiction. They are just autobiographical mm-hmm. novels that have some serious weirdness to them. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... um I think those are people who I, I look up to. The word story covers a lot of ground, too. I mean, it's okay to just tell a story. And if you yeah. hit some other points while you're telling a story. Well, it's not a PSA. I mean, that's no. weird. I mean, everyone's sort of looking for the lesson. And I do think that the character, mm-hmm. that Lola learns a lesson within cult mm-hmm. classic. But I don't think that the reader has to. I'm not trying to. I'm yelling at her, not you. <laughs> Oh, that's clear. Oh, no, 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 that's clear. That is very clear. Like, you're cool, reader, who buys this book. We're fine. But Lola, I mean, she is genuinely deeply messy, but... Yeah, she's deeply messy, but I do think that's what where the discomfort of fiction mm-hmm. comes from, is finding yourself in deeply messy people. Right. Um, and, you know, historically, I'm not going to name names. But historically, that's where the profound discomfort comes from. And someone talking you into, you know, introduces themselves and says, I am a monster. Please come with me, you know, or I've done a horrible thing, but let me tell you why. And I think it is uh, sort of modern, more maybe casual challenge to say, I am a mess and I have treated people poorly. Mm -hmm. And I am potentially treating my own partner poorly, and I am self-pitying and a little bit embarrassing, still like me. And that is not to say that I am uh, concerned with the likability of characters as a notion. I think there was a a bit of a kerfuffle around a Claire Massoud book at some point about female likability, you know, and so that's that's not what I mean. I just mean literally you have to have, there has to be an outlet somewhere that the reader can plug into. Um, and that's true with the most heinous of, of narrators. And I don't think she's the most heinous. No, she's um, not. <laughs> but I do think that that's where the source of discomfort comes in. You're working on the next thing. Yes. Yeah. And the next thing is a little different. Yes. Yeah. When are you delivering that manuscript? Oh, from your mouth to my editor's ears. <laughs> <laughs> um, I will uh, be working on... Hopefully notes will come in shortly, and okay. then it'll probably be, uh, I assume, the latter half of next year. I mean, it's been announced, yeah, so I, I mean, I, I do want to hit it a little bit because it is sort of a classic memoir-ish, yeah. which is a little different for you. I mean, we're not, we're not doing the essays. We're certainly not doing fiction. Would you let folks know what this is? Sure. I mean, it is a little bit more of a dance, less less of a dance monkey dance thing, mm. which was what the essays feel like. And is what I pride myself on is mm-hmm. entertainment. Basically, it's called Grief is for People, mm-hmm. and it follows the, it's in five parts, and it follows the Kubler-Ross um, stages of grief. They have not been debunked in and of themselves individually, right. but they, you know, we can move them around like a shell game. Mm-hmm. Things come mm-hmm. and go, emotions come and go. Sort of similarly, I guess, to the point of cult classic is, you know, I don't believe in slamming the door 
and not having something sneak up on you. So, you know, there's a little bit of bleed, uh, but it's about a series of unfortunate events. Mm-hmm. Um, I was burglarized. And then a month later, someone you know too, mm-hmm. uh, beloved figure in publishing, uh, my uh, former boss and best friend, uh, Russell Perot, died from suicide. And then COVID hit. And it's mostly about him mm-hmm. and our friendship. Uh, so in that sense, I suppose um, there's a sort of truth and beauty aspect to it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's called Grief is for People because it's about different types of, of grief. I don't want to spoil it uh, because weirdly there is a, a couple of unexpected things happen. So it's not a straight, a straight grief book. But it was mm-hmm. very hard to write. I wrote it during the pandemic. And I will say before when I was saying that editing should be more like spackling, mm-hmm. I was editing cult classic while I was writing Grief is for People, which I normally don't really do. Mm. And that was a very strange feeling. I could mm-hmm. never have, never, ever have written them both at the same time. But instead, you know, punching up jokes or taking things down a notch and fiddling with cult classic was such a welcome respite mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from crying. <laughs> yeah. All the time. Yeah. Every day. I did a really sort of stupid thing that I hope will pay off, which is take a very sad moment in all of our lives and write about suicide and mm-hmm. inside of it. You've had the same editor mm-hmm. since your first book in 2008. Yes. Beaming. I know. And I just, <laughs> I do actually want to shout this guy out for yeah, a minute. Yeah, do it. I mean, here's the thing. What's that... He's worked with you on essays. He's worked with you on the novels. And you took, what, 200 and something pages out of the class before you passed it for press? We airlifted it, yeah. Okay. We got some heavy machinery, lifted it. And now you're working on this memoir. Mm -hmm. I mean, so when you're sitting down, though, with your editor Mm -hmm. and you're sending him pages for the first time, what happens next? Does it depend on what it is that you're sending? Does it depend on, like, how does that relationship work? I am really lucky in the fact that I can come to Sean McDonald, which Mm -hmm. is, he has a name. He's a person. He's a dude. He's a dude. (laughs) I can come to Sean probably, I I would imagine, a little messier than other authors can come Mm -hmm. to their editors who Mm -hmm. don't know them as well. So who can't see what this sort of half-form thing can be, which I'm being a little hard on myself, more like, you know, 80% Mm -hmm. form. Um, and so, well, first what I do, and I wait, <laughs> I wait for a little longer than I should, Sean. Are you listening? But when the editorial letter comes back, mm-hmm. I find that um, my experience, and again, this is also a 90s sort of reference, is um, of like the Dion Warwick Psychic Friends Network, mm-hmm. where there were mm-hmm. all these commercials where she, you know, you call and, you know, yeah. you, has these psychics and these people call and... They say nothing, and they're like, oh, you have a, like, you seem to have a rough relationship with your mother. And they're so relieved. It's like they're telling, the psychics are saying what the person already knows. But it's just so delightful to feel seen and known like that. It feels like therapy, you know, in mm-hmm. a way where they, but it's therapy instead for the book itself. Mm-hmm. So he can sort of see through it and see what it needs and see what I'm trying to do. So you get that sort of initial mm-hmm. letter from him. Only once has he come back and said, it was my second book for How Did You Get This Number? And actually, this actually sort of shares a border with what we've been talking Mm -hmm, about today. mm -hmm. Where For my second book, he came back and he said, you know, it's sort of missing an essay. And I said, well, we can do this the hard way or the easy way. I can filibuster and write about, you know, shopping for bananas, or you can tell me something deep. (laughs) And he says, you you never write about your love life. Never write about this stuff. And I I bristled. I was Mm -hmm. still very much in that phase of, well, I I don't write about that kind of thing. That's not who I am. I have no desire to do it. And uh, 
He's like, well, just give it a shot. I said, okay, fine. I'll try to figure out. And again, I was trying to figure out a way to aim through the wood and mm-hmm. at the chopping block. And I'm really proud of the essay that came out of it. Um, mm-hmm. It's um, called Off the Back of a Truck. And it's the last essay in the second collection. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, seeing somebody who turned out to be have a live-in girlfriend. I didn't know for various reasons, which makes me sound like an idiot, but I didn't. Um, and at the same time, I was accepting uh, stolen furniture, <laughs> which is another long story. But this sort of CNN crawl, I can almost see the mm-hmm. headline mm-hmm. going past my brain of, well, how much are we responsible for someone else's stuff? So I found the physical, literal container in which to put this romantic story. And that is when I you know, completed the book. But that's the only time he said, there's something fundamentally wrong with what you're doing, essentially. Or there's something fundamentally missing, rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want more of it. Otherwise, that uh, it's it's fun to edit with Sean. Sean, if uh, for those of you who don't know him, which is presumably possibly most, some most people, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm like for those of you who have not been to my apartment. Yeah, it's such a strange way to put that. He he can be a little bit quiet mm-hmm. uh, at a party, um, and so I think I for a while was putting things in my work for for shock value for Sean. <laughs> I can totally see you that. Can see it, right? Oh, I can totally just see jokes that. that just gross out jokes. Or, you know, weird lady things mm-hmm. just to freak him out. But um, mm-hmm. Sean, you know, is, is a, I think provides a tremendous amount of sort of calm and texture that, that behooves my writing. Is that also part of how you got to the voice that you have? Because your voice is really consistent. It's really consistent and really original. And it, Thank you, you don't fall into cynicism. There's, you know, I can tell when you're sort of raising an eyebrow on the page. <laughs> which I appreciate. I mean, wit, totally underrated. But is that relationship partially how you found, you know, Sloan Crosley trademark? Oh, yeah. Voice. TM. (laughs) (laughs) It's my favorite emoji, the TM emoji. (laughs) I'll see you at eight, TM. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to voice, you know, you were talking about influences from the novel, but influences for voice tend to come from uh, more, if you know, if you want to sort of Take it back one click. Mm-hmm. It's other writers. So yep. it's it's you know um, Nora Ephron, you know, the obvious ones. Dorothy mm-hmm. Parker, David Rakoff, a friend, and I miss dearly as a human being on this earth. Um, uh, Sedaris, obviously, uh, but then you know going back Joseph Mitchell, um, and I feel like I was sort of weaned on that kind of like sort of old fashioned, yeah, witticism humor. Mm-hmm. Um, but without celebrating it too mm-hmm. much, you know, without patting yourself on the back for your own jokes. That's why you sort of have to weed them out. I mean, most humorists have to do that. It's, you know, they go, oh, were you always funny? And it's, it's more about taking it down so you're not mm-hmm. celebrating your own voice. Right. But then further back, I just, I mean, this isn't really what you're asking, but I think that, you know, for men, while we're talking about comedians, you always hear this story about they became funny to, to pick up chicks, you know, they became funny in college or they became funny to be well-liked because they were... Maybe they were being picked on mm-hmm. um, and to, it's a self-protection thing. For me, it's how you proved you were smart. The only way you proved you were smart in our family, the only way you got a word edgewise, mm-hmm. um, was if you were funny. And so <laughs> uh, it's hard to bring people home. Thank you for asking. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I do, I do think it's from, from that. And then with Sean, I do think that... Yeah, you want to be around someone who's a little hard to impress. And whether or not 
you know, I, he, he has an editorial letter that he wrote at the beginning mm-hmm. of the galley, and I read it, and it was just full of more adjectives than I have ever heard him <laughs> say to my face. And I was like, did this hurt? Did this hurt you <laughs> to write? But I know what he thinks, you know? And right. there's, it's, I mean, that's, again, you know, when you said consistency, it is, yeah, he's definitely a person in my life that's been very consistent. Um, but he does not do things fast enough. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> do you think about Lola now that the book's done? Now that you've done your piece? I mean, you are about to hit the road. You're going to yeah. be touring and all of this kind of thing. But Yeah, you take them in a hat box and mm. poke holes in it and bring mm. them with you. <laughs> yeah, I do think about her mm-hmm. in the sense that you know, there's no point in, in even denying how much of her is me. And she does feel mm. like a somewhat of an older version of me. It's funny because none of the men are men. Oh, they're men. They don't feel, mm-hmm. because I don't recognize them right. in real life. Right. Um, I miss her a little bit, mm-hmm. and I miss Clive. Right. Um, and I wonder if there's a little bit of our friend Russell and Clive occasionally, even though they're very, very, very <laughs> different in, in, every, in every way except some of the dynamic, mm-hmm. you know, where you can sense the deep love mm-hmm. and the cruelest stuff that gets said, you know, casually between them. So I think it's all a little muddled in my brain about what I miss. I miss her and her dumb mistakes, and I, I do miss her relationship with this person who is mm-hmm. manipulating her for his own gains throughout the novel. Did writing cult classic change you at all? The contents of the book didn't change me, but the existence of a second novel I think has made me feel a little more comfortable with that. Not completely comfortable, but Have a little you, more. <laughs> I don't know. If you were completely comfortable, you wouldn't be Sloane. <laughs> completely comfortable. Yeah, it's fine. But that's true of every author, that, that crazy mix of insecurity and ego, uh, which is why writers uh, and actors and um, artists so often can only marry each other, because who could possibly stand it? <laughs> <laughs> On that note, <laughs> I don't but know. I believe in love. <laughs> Happy Valentine's Day. That's good to know. I'm glad someone believes in love. Dude, I'm an ex-Bostonian. We don't know really what to do with it. We don't know how to dance. We don't yeah, know yeah. what to do with love. Aww. And I feel like we should have Barry Manilow as outro music, but I don't think we can oh, afford we the royalty. <laughs> what about Olivia Newton-John? I love you. Oh, yeah. What is it? I love you. I honestly love you. But it's like, I don't. I love you. I honestly love you. I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, I think is the next line. Oh, I it's had no idea. It's something like that. Yeah, yeah, I had no where idea. Where it's, it's, you know, there's so many, um, you know, they say that Sting wrote, you know, the, the stalker's anthem or, you know, mm-hmm. like all these things. And I'm like, I don't know. Again, this actually, now I'm going to say, uh, connect, connect <laughs> it with the book. Like, the ladies can be really um, complicated and in need of... In need of some help. Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily Lola does get some perspective. Yes, she and we she get some does. entertainment while. Well, Lola she gets, gets to some find out that it's not all. I, without spoiling the book, it is not all about her. Sloane Crosley, thank you so much. Thank Cl- you for having me. It's great to see you. <laughs> it's really good to see yeah, you too. Hi. Cult classic <laughs> is out now. Yes. Poured over is a Barnes and Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.